You're listening to The Retail Perch with Shekhar Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Uh, hello, folks. Uh, welcome back to The Retail Perch for another episode. Very uh, exciting episode here coming up. And uh, Gary, you want to say a quick hi? Baker, great to be with you today and looking forward to a great discussion with uh, Ron Bonacci. Yeah, and you know, uh, folks, over the past couple of weeks, we've had some really exciting and interesting guests that we've had some great conversations with, and we definitely deeply appreciate them. But today, I got to tell you, is extra special because we have somebody who is a veteran in the industry who's who's seen it all, who's seen it grow right from day one, and he's been with many companies, tremendous uh, background. I'll let him speak for himself because uh, I think we can actually take up the entire 40 minutes, 45 minutes just talking about his background and, and where he's coming from. But Ron, I'll pass it over to you. Here's Ron Bonacci, currently at Weiss Markets, running marketing and PR. Thank you, Shaker, and thank you, Gary. It's it's nice to be here, and thanks for the opportunity to have this podcast with you. Now, my background uh, actually in the grocery industry is almost 30-plus years starting out with the Kroger company and um, going up through some of the ranks in the Kroger's from the stores to category management merchandising, and then privileged and pleased to uh, be the person to launch the Kroger Plus card. And then to do all those kind of things and bring in, bring in uh, instrumental on the, what opportunities were with the uh, Dunhumby from an analytical standpoint. My background also was I was a uh, statistical engineer for U.S. Steel Corporation, so I understood numbers and analytics and that kind of stuff. So from there, I went on to uh, very shortly went on to SNH Green Stamps, which was called SNH Solutions Change and went out to a lot of the industry. So I went on the other side, if you will, to help and support the grocery industry and went into many different retailers to uh, bring about loyalty marketing, what it meant and what it stood for. During all that time, of course, I met Gary Hawkins and, and when he wrote his book and was on his journey. So uh, early pioneer with Gary in, in many backgrounds. From there, I went on to uh, Food City where I uh, did much of the loyalty marketing and, and, and promoted its program been a couple of years with the Albertsons company down in Texas, and then now have been here with Wise Markets for three years as vice president of advertising and marketing and public relations. So a long journey in the company, a lot of success, a lot of pain and pressures, and um, a lot of learning to go out there and a lot of support from a lot of people. That's amazing. I mean, so basically, uh, Ron, you've kind of seen this industry from its infancy to where it is today the use of data, the growth of loyalty marketing. And you've been in the industry before there was a loyalty card that was used in supermarkets. That's correct. Yes, sir. When when the pioneer of a card came about, a lot of the industry said, you know, uh, you're just putting reduced prices on the card. But the idea was we knew early on, way back then, it was about the data. You really had to get the data and understand who that customer was and then how you could then change behavior with that customer. Even though in the early days, no one understood it. Ron, I think you were certainly one of the very few people early on that did understand it was all about data. And I think really interesting your background and having that analytical point of view, if you will, and and grounding uh, probably has served you really well over the years. Yes, I was allowed to be on the Kroger Category Management Steering Committee, and I was allowed to be on the Private Brand Steering Committee. And going out to the manufacturing committees, they had 52 manufacturing plants at the time. And being on their committees to see from an analytical standpoint and really looking at 
their stats, not just their accounting and their sales and that kind of stuff. So gave me an insight to understanding that the data was a key for success and how we could change and do them for a more profitable way in uh, engaging customers. I'm assuming this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s timeframe, right? I mean, obviously at that time, yes, I mean, the internet boom had taken over, but still, I mean, getting that kind of computer infrastructure to analyze that kind of data must not have been easy. Well, you know, it, it, it wasn't, but, uh, you know, again, I, I applaud a lot of the industry because they listened and they learned and they rapidly changed. You know, Kroger's, we put in uh, IBM's DB2 database system that allow us to do a lot of key metrics and then when I got down to SNH, they had they had a huge data center that they understood that uh, if we rolled out this data and did this integration, that we could change behavior and measure it. That was the amazing thing about loyalties. Everything you did, you can measure. And in today's world, that still continues to be the premises of what you're doing is when you uh, analyze the data, do something with the data, you can analyze. I'll never forget the president of the Kroger company, his name is Don McGeorge, said to me, there's a lot of nice to knows in that data, Ron. But whenever you do, make it actionable. Make it actionable. And uh, that was my learning I took away in my early days. Wow. Make it actionable. I mean, that's, that's I think, a good mantra for most marketers to go by. Because, you know, we hear from retailers that, you know, I mean, they get reports on their desk uh, up the wazoo. You know, more paper that's showing up on their emails and their computer desk that they know what to do with. So how do you figure out what's actionable? Well, you know, there's there's some easy wins there. First of all, you know, you you can measure lost shoppers. That's one way. Obviously, people move across the nation. And, you know, way back then, it started out about 18% of the community had moved back and forth, uh, whether it's across town or, or across cities or or from coast to coast. And so you could measure those those new customers to your door. And you always want to take advantage because you don't want to lose customers. In, in Gary's early book, he talked about customer churn. And obviously, there's this journey is get a new customer, they're with you for some period of time, which is called lifetime value of a customer, and then you lose customers, which is the leaky bucket theory is, you know, and so you got to measure that churn, and it, that is one way uh, that you can look at customers, and then you can start segmenting customers by depth of store. How many categories are they are they shopping in your stores? What is the depth and breadth? Uh, what are the type of products that they're going to buy? So is, is it elusive that they're that you know they're going to be a short-termer because they're only buying convenience items from you as opposed to more of the uh, solid core family value purchases that, that consumers would do? And then you have other areas that you can look at like category voids. You know, I mean, it's some of these are really low-hanging fruits when you think about it, like uh, everybody knows that bath tissue is in every home. And uh, when you start looking at databases and you say, oh, my God, I only have 60% of my customers are buying bath tissue from me. This is a fact because I can tell you the numbers. And you start saying, this 40%, where are they going? You know, uh, what competition are they going down to buy that? So all of a sudden, you found yourself something else that you can target. And there's a lot of these low-hanging fruits that you can look at. Personal care, you know, toothpaste, toothbrush, soap, uh, you know, laundry detergent, all those kind of things are very, very low-hanging fruit that can really make a difference. And I used to, I used to tell uh, in my early days, give it to them free because obviously they're going somewhere for that. And if I could keep them in my store one more time or add that value, it was going to make a difference in our purchase history. The other thing you could think about too is the frequency of shop. You know, the, the old study was RFM, recency, frequency, and monetary. And then what is the frequency? And I remember in the early books when they wrote loyalty marketing prior to Gary's, which was Brian, 
Uh, when he wrote his book, he said one more item in the basket meant X, but when he never talked about what was the frequency value of that, because when you put, when you add a frequency at a $35 or 40 or whatever your basket size is, that is like 40 times X when you think about it. So adding, getting that customer to shop one more time actually adds so much incremental sales dollars to that. And when you're measuring those statistics, those are other low-hanging fruits is what is the value of, of a shopper to you in terms of their frequency value to your stores. And then you can you can then pocket them. You know, in the early days, it was uh, gold, silver, bronze, tin, dross, and Gary probably a chuckle about those if he if <laughs> as the, the uh, classified customers out there. That's yeah. amazing. No, I, I, I tell you, Shaker, I love talking to Ron because he just knows this stuff so deeply, right? And I, I think what's interesting here is, you know, what Ron is calling out as sort of low-hanging fruit is second nature to him and to probably literally a handful of other people that really understand this whole space. But to so many others, you know, they just look at a report or they look at data or they focus on what consultant tells them to look at and so on. To me, this space has always involved sort of a left brain, right brain combination, right? You know, you need the analytics, you need to drive the, the analytics from it, but the real power comes in being able to look at numbers and look at behavior and then translate that over to how people actually shop. And I think, you know, Ron's got that ability clearly, and that's where the real, I think, juice comes from here. Yeah, Gary, you know, uh, what you said is absolutely true because you, you have to think it's, it's, it's how you're going to utilize that data. And then what is the creative power that's going to move that customer to change their mind? You know, the holy grail, obviously, we always talked about was getting one-to-one -one marketing. And obviously, with AI and the achievements today, we're there. But it's still the message. What is the creative message that makes that customer change their behavior and turning right versus left? Out of their out of their driveway to go to our store versus the competitor, and there's always that challenge: is did you create it enough? Was the offer great enough? Um, did you reach reach the right categories that motivated that customer? One of the things I saw early in in the um, Dunhumby data, and I'll give you a real quick example. I used to uh, when I was the dairy category manager, I used to eliminate this one butter, and it was a sweet butter. And uh, when I I kept eliminating because its sales were terrible. You know, and it really didn't belong in the box when you think about it. But when you go back and look at who's buying it, and all of a sudden you realize every one of these people are your top, top shoppers in your store. And they cared about that product because it was the reason they came to your store because it was wow. unique in their purchase history. So when you eliminate it, we got a flood of, of customer complaints. And then we put it back in, we got the satisfaction of those top shoppers who never went anywhere else because we carried that one sweet butter for them and it was in their core factors. Give you another example I'll, I'll never forget because it was an amazing thing. When we looked at the data way back when, and we saw that you measure the customers on spend and everything and the value that they bring, we had one customer spending over $20,000 a quarter in our store. And I won't tell you which division that was in the Kroger company. Quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter, she is spending that kind of money. So everybody just assumed she was a small business. The reality was, she was the, one of the most charitable persons in the community. What she did was way back in before online shopping and delivery uh, came about, she would go to all the nursing homes in the area and say, I'll shop for free if you, for you if you just tell me what you want and give me your money and I'll go to the store and get all your groceries and bring them to your house, bring them back to the, to the nursing home. 
And uh, all of a sudden, you know, and even this division didn't even pay attention much to this top shopper, uh, as they did in most of them, we had to kind of push them along that way. All of a sudden, her purchases disappeared total, $20,000 a quarter, $100,000 a year in your store. Think about that. So I did an investigation, and the, the, the division didn't know she was gone, um, but we did kept researching her, and we found her, believe it or not, Gary, in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> we looked her up and uh, contacted her. And what she had told us, her story was remarkable because she said that's what she had done was go out to all the nursing homes in the community. She had so much free time on her hands and helped all those communities, uh, nursing homes to shop. And she explained that story, which was so amazing. So I called the uh, King Supers there and said, you need to look out for this customer because she's going to be your best customer. And all of a sudden, you got to realize the dynamics of some of these people because uniqueness in their value uh, can make a difference. Yeah, th that is so amazing. I mean, especially a story like this, uh, hear a story like this in these times when, you know, everything seems to be doom and gloom that there's, you know, many people like this in the world who are willing to go out and do stuff. That's that's really heartwarming. That's, that's quite amazing, right? Uh, so I have, a, I have an interesting question here. So, of course, you know, data is in incredible. I'm sure, it, you know, it tells you a lot. It tells a story of its own. But how do you translate some of that into operational changes? That is a great question, Shaker. Believe it or not, I've created a dashboard, and Gary has seen it in two of you. In that dashboard, I actually can tell a store manager what's going to happen in his store before he or she can see it themselves because there's trends that take place in the data that will tell you what's going on. And that dashboard gives me insights in, in what's going on. So you can go down and tell them that in time, your store's in trouble because you're, you're depleting customers at a faster rate than you're adding new customers. The other thing is uh, when you look out there and you, you, and you get into the stores, the store managers are now coming to us for insights and information. Hey, they're, they're starting to absorb that like a sponge. Tell me about my customers. Tell me about the demographic profile. Who do I need to attract? What's in that marketplace that I'm just not aware of? Good, here's a good example. We opened up a store, um, and I won't tell you the city or anything like that, but we opened up a store typically as we traditionally do. It was totally category uh, related to all the categories and insights. And little little be notes to the, the store manager in the community because they didn't, they, they really weren't involved in there because they kind of moved into there when we opened a brand new store. But another side of population came into that marketplace that, that they did not see on their radar. But all of a sudden you have to have the type of products and services that, that, that this type of people shop for. And it wasn't in a store. And uh, we had 30%, when we opened those doors that morning, 30% of them walked through the front door to evaluate our new store. And we weren't prepared for that, that type of customer. Hmm. All of a sudden, within three days, that's how fast the pivotal we did, was we added all those products uh, that they would use in increment and then had to re-merchandise and remarket to those people to let them know we now carried the types of products and services that they were looking for. So you got to be nimble enough and you got to listen and make sure that the demographic profile um, meets the needs of the community that you're serving. So maybe my local supermarket is going to hear this podcast and start carrying samosas in the supermarket. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Just maybe, right? There is hope still. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. And, you know, and, I, and recently I, I wrote a blog called Reading the Tea Leaves. And then, you know, uh, Ron, that's exactly what you're saying is, is the data tells the story. You may not know why it's happening, but you know it's happening. And, and somebody who can take action on that can then dig down to the actual reason 
you know, whatever is happening is happening. I mean, I, I love that. So I, I think, you know, data obviously is critically important to all of us, but I, I think there's another side to it too. And the story Ron shared just a couple of minutes ago about that uh, woman who was shopping for other people and so on uh, illustrates that, that, you know, behind all that data are real people and right. real customers. And it doesn't matter if, you know, you're a one-store operator or you're the largest retailer in the country, you know, ultimately it comes down to people, it comes down to relationships. And I think the, the challenge in front of everyone in this industry is how do we use all this data to build and foster and grow those relationships with each of our customers? I mean, it's easy, you know, all of us involved in marketing, we think about personalization and I can get more relevant savings to people and all that's absolutely critically important. But I, I think it needs to go one step further, as Ron has alluded to here. You've got to make that information, that data, actionable for the people at store level that are seeing people day in and day out on the sales floor. Yeah, you know, I, I've heard from many industry leaders who build big companies that, uh, you know, you always put people before profit. And if you can treat your people right and your customers right, the profit will follow, you know. Uh, you know, and many people, I guess, uh, Ron, you know, especially with the internet age are become wary about data collection and how it's being used. And, and I think it's amazing to see that in the supermarket industry, it's really being used to figure out how can we service our customers better and, and, and really add value to their lives. And given the current circumstance where the supermarket industry has become the center of most people's lives, uh, I think it, it just highlights the fact that if supermarkets can actually use that data effectively, they can retain some of the gains that they've gotten in the last six months and keep these customers happy. Shaker, I think, I think you're spot on in what you just said. Think about this. You know, back in the early days, and we used to, Gary used to talk about this, and so did I, is 1800s, early 1900s, you knew your customer well. When they came in the door, you knew exactly what they wanted. You knew how to satisfy their needs, and they went on their way. So it was really understanding them. What COVID-19 did to our industry, first of all, it made us one of the first responders because we had to be there. We were mandated that we were going to be open and, and uh, service the need. We had to be concerned about the customer safety and all that. It was paramount, without a doubt, and our company uh, stepped up to the plate and did that 100% flawlessly. But at the same time, it gave us the insights to say, what are the customers really buying? Because you know the interesting dynamic? When you looked at the grocery store in the height of this pandemic, what was left on your shelves really was the products they were not looking for. The evolution of the shop, if, if you looked at what the customers did, it was amazing. They came in and the first thing there was the pandemic is they were going to stock up on the bath tissue, the laundry detergent, the hand sanitizer, the paper towels, and wiped, us, wiped out the grocery industry. Then they switched over to uh, all the personal care stuff to make sure they had everything they needed for personal care. Then they switched up, believe it or not, all of a sudden um, cooking became very relevant and real again. So oil, sugar, flour, you know, uh, all the baking goods, uh, the cake mixes and all that stuff started to end off the shelves. And believe it or not, they were buying game puzzles and, and things to do at home because they were all uh, shut in. Um, so all those things and toasters and pressure cookers and all this stuff that we carried that might sell one a store, you know, occasionally, it was being wiped out because they were all learning to cook and learning as a family to the, the meal was being served together. So it gave us the perspective of looking at a customer holistically and how, how their true family actually behaved in this time of COVID and how we had to transition to make sure that we had all the supply needs for them. 
And of course, bread, milk, and eggs still became the most relevance in the basket again, along with any meat products that, uh, as you heard in the pandemics, where a lot of these factories were closing down. And we were really blessed because we have our meat department, so we were never without meat and servicing the community. So, Ron, do you think that a lot of these changes in, in behavior, people cooking more meals at home, eating more meals at home, and so on, do you think that trend is going to stay with the supermarket industry for a while, or do you think people are going to shift back to restaurants and takeout and so on as fast as they can? You know, I, I think there's a new love for food, Gary, and uh, I think I think restaurants will still serve, service uh, some of the needs. But if you hear some of the stats, whether it's true or not, that 25 or 30 percent of uh, all the re- restaurants will never reopen again um, as the extension of COVID continues. But I think there's a, this new love of, of food and cooking, and uh, I, I think the family gets surrounding it. You know, my daughter, she's a typical example. Oh my gosh, she's been grilling, she's been cooking at home, she's she's been delighted to. You know, hey, I'm going to go get steaks tonight. Let's let's uh, you know grill them out and stuff. I think there's a new love for that, uh, and I think uh, because of the industry over the last five to ten years with all these food shows and networks, the Food Network and stuff, I think there's a new passion uh, with all these chefs and celebrity uh, chefs and things. I think there's a new passion out there that that maybe another meal will be served at the table with the family. And I hope so, because we need more of that uh, families uh, around being in the community they serve and being with their own family. I, I think that's I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the silver lining in all of this is that I think families have definitely gotten closer and gotten to spend more time with each other uh, in this time. So, so any specific challenges that you can point out that wise had to navigate through this time? that you had not anticipated or you you kind of accelerated some implementations of some technologies which you would have done later and you did it sooner? We have been on a technology journey and, and the problem with technology, there's so much fast and, and Gary calls it the speed of eye. But the idea is that there's so much data, there's so much things coming at you. It's, it's how you inseminate that and then taking that piece or component and uh, make a difference with it. And that's marketing to customers in the way they want to be marketed to. One-to-one marketing is, is the holy grail, uh, obviously, is giving them those, those products when they want them, at the time they want them. And actually looking to what's going out there because, you know, this, the CPG industry has, is dynamically changed and maybe forever because what they did was decide that I can't give you the 10 varieties that I once had, produce three of them, and so I can maximize my uh, manufacturing facility and, and just keep that production running. Because a lot of manufacturers are still telling us it's going to be the end of 2021 and perhaps the first quarter of 2022 before they're ever back to some normalcy. If that's the case in a lot of these industries, uh, I think that product assortment is going to be very limited in some cases categories. And the new norm is that less is more. Families staying home more, I, I think there's a great need for us to really understand, you know, the, the key importance that, that make the consumer feel good about what they're buying today, uh, because we're bringing a lot of generic items to the shelf that we would have never thought about even just six months ago, because you have to, out of the need of the business and what, what the demand is out there, uh, there's so many new manufacturers that came into us that flooded our gates that says, hey, I got products that you would probably like that you would have never looked at before because the national brands controlled everything. Now, private label is exploding out there, and those people willing to give you off brands that is just as good, high quality out there to, uh, to put on your shelves to, to meet that need. So I think 
consumers are going to be more adaptive to looking at different things, seeing what's available to them. And we got to be ready for that from, from uh, understanding and insight. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people would agree with the, the notion that the in-store product assortment is going to become rationalized, more limited, uh, and, and productive. Do you think some of the variety is going to migrate online where, you know, you've got that long tail of merchandise that doesn't make sense to put on the shelf in the store, but maybe you can make it available to shoppers online? You know, Gary, during this pandemic, e-commerce exploded, and we were no different than anyone else out there. Uh, we increased 300 plus percent in our e-commerce platform. And, we, and, and yes, I think the product assortment offered online will continue to grow. And we are already ourselves because we couldn't norm, normally have or, or source on a given factors. Because when you order 10 truckloads of product and three show up because the manufacturer puts you on allocation, or short of those products, you're going to put those online and let the consumer know that, hey, it's coming or and that kind of thing, even though you don't carry it in your store. So they feel good about, hey, I, I like this product. I want to get it as soon as it's available in my market. So do you see consumer behavior changing in terms of how they shop? Do you think there's going to be a greater percentage of your shoppers that are also willing to try online because they've had to try it out of circumstances? And will they continue, do you think? You've probably read all the st statistics that, you know, 36% of the people who have never tried online shopping have, have now tried it. And 90% said they're going to continue to shopping uh, on, online. I don't have any reason not to believe that number. Uh, I can tell you in my own database that's, that number is pretty realistic. We continue to see people give it a try. Uh, we continue to see people uh, like that aspect and get continuations orders. What we have to evolve to is, is to be that, quote, Amazon, where we say, hey, we'll, we'll deliver this set baskets, maybe it's milk, bread, egg, whatever that is, on a timely fashion to you. So we'll make it easy for you. You don't have to tell us each time you want that order. On a cycle, whatever you choose, we're going to make sure that that order is there for you, ready to pick up or deliver to your home. And I think that's where part of the e-commerce is going to evolve, Gary, in the sense that, and Shaker, that uh, we're going to be the, the need basis and understand their needs um, and have that consumer be ready with their basket to, to give them the products that and they're looking for on a timely fashion. You know, there's, there's websites out there, and I'll use one as an example, Chewy.com, that says, we're going to send you your dog food every 60 days or whatever their cycle is. That's where we're going to be have to be prepared to do. Because as consumers become more in-depth of using online shopping, we've got to parlay ourselves into that type of service to say, uh, we understand who you are, we know what your needs are, and uh, we'll be prepared and ready to have that when you're ready. This is like the 50s and 60s milk delivery van, I guess. You're going to find your products in your front door every morning that you yeah. need. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's, that's so, really so, interesting. So, Ron, I've got a question for you. You know, thinking beyond just online shopping, over the last six or eight months, you know, as we've moved into and through this, this whole pandemic, have you seen uh, shop more shoppers digitally engaging with Weiss Markets, either through your app or website or, or whatever digital channel? Believe it or not, we had over 100,000 people come online that had never been online with us. Um, and that's, that's the kind wow. of thing we did. Yes. So uh, the adoption of online shopping and, and going out to your digital platform to see what's new and relevant um, is now going to be a critical uh, platform that uh, all retailers are going to have to get to. Uh, 
we continue to see uh, those customers looking at us, uh, seeing what's new or exciting. So we, we are developing ourselves rapidly to having digital ads, not just what's in the store that we would print for a, new, a weekly newspaper, but what else, what else is current relative um, for the consumer and making that a digital platform for that con consumer to click and make it easy something else that the industry has to evolve to is to make that shopping list available. For instance, we have last Thanksgiving shopping list that you, that you may have shopped. So this Thanksgiving, we're ready. All you have to do is do one click and you've got your shopping list done for you because or Easter or Christmas or any other time frame. So we got to keep that history profile, understand what they're looking for and making that available to that consumer. So they don't have to go out and search through 25, 40,000 items uh, to hand select them again. We know what they shopped last time. Let's 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 uh, cue that up for them, have it for them, and we're ready. Ron, just talking about the future, right? So we've talked about where we are, you know, some of the challenges. What do you see as the direction in which things are going? What do you see some of the challenges that you think retailers out there who are kind of early in the loyalty game and still starting to get their organizations kind of rallied around loyalty and implementing it? Do you have any words of advice or challenges that they need to be looking out for as they go out? Into this. I think it has to be the adoption, and you know, Gary knows this from way back, is the executives of the company have to embrace it. They have to believe in it, and then they have to put people in place that are, are willing to manage that process and then reach out to any third parties, such as Bird's Eye or, or anyone else, utilize their expertise and implement any of these, any of these opportunities. Because Trust me, you can change customers' behavior um, without a doubt if you know how to utilize the data, you know how to market to those consumers, and you know how to be relevant to them. And you also know from the customer data, if you're watching it, who you're losing, what shoppers you're losing, um, and you know a lot about them just on their purchase behavior, not counting what you might do um, if you uh, append your data with psychographic information that can give you a much deeper in-depth of that consumer's profile and what they like or dislike. It also gives you an insight when you do that into the family. You know, is the family seven kids? Is this family two? Is the family uh, adults? Is it, you know, gives you that insight on how to market to them for the future. I always say that data is perishable. It evolves as the consumer evolves in their life stage and lifestyle cycles. Mm -hmm. So you got to be relevant at the relevant time as their life stage changes. Right. I like that because, you know, we spoke to, uh, is it Coburn's Gary that we spoke to recently, yeah, yeah. Dennis and Diana who were on the show. And I think they said exactly the same thing, which is that it's, you know, something like this requires executive sponsorship and putting the team in place that's going to manage the process. And that's really key to successfully rolling out. And we've yeah. seen cases where there hasn't been a full buy-in from executives. And so the, the whole effort has been kind of lukewarm and wind up, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty costly if you're not going to do this right, right? Yes, it's costly because you have to have a budget for it because you, right. you got to target that customer and you're going to spend some money to target that customer. But I, I would ask you, anybody in the grocery industry, would you spend a dollar fifty to gain a new customer or would you spend $10 to gain a new customer? If you would do that and you should, why would you not market to that customer if you knew you could get that lifetime value, which is three or four, 10, 12, 15, $30,000 over that customer's lifetime? You know, well worth it. You think about this, you know, the relevancy is very, very true. You know, when you lose a customer, it takes almost 10 customers, new customers, to equal that top shopper that you once had. And you can't afford to lose those people. And you got to understand the dynamics of what you lost um, 
when you lose a customer, what level they were spending in your store, what value they brought to your store, um, and how many customers you got to get back in order to make up that value proposition of, of who you lost. Yeah, and, and that's why I think, as you just called out, executive understanding, executive support, and really leadership in this space is so, so important here, right? Because ultimately, this means looking at retail differently, ultimately measuring retail differently, right? You know, sure, you still look at sales and transactions, but you're also looking at, you know, uh, how many customer households are shopping, how well am I retaining them, am I, you know, uh, migrating them, and so on. And as we go forward, I, I think we're going to just see more and more of a change in how retail goes to market. And executives that have grown up on a you know pilot high and let it fly mass merchandising basis aren't going to play well in this new world where it's really focused on serving each individual customer with what's relevant and what's relevant savings to them. Well said, Gary. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you, we enter the age of I, like Gary puts it, uh, you know, obviously companies like uh, Amazon, you know, Whole Foods that are digital natives, I call them, uh, come in uh, and, you know, they start impacting grocers in every part of the country because it really doesn't matter where you live. How does, how does an independent uh, grocer, regional grocer such as yourself, how, you know, what's, what's your strategy in terms of making sure you can keep, keep your customers and grow them? Well, I would tell you, uh, you you got to own fresh. You got to own fresh, and uh, you got to own the relevancy of of uh, the perishable nature of dairy and fresh, because uh, Amazon can't figure that out, and nobody's going to box it up in with uh, you know whether it's uh, dry ice or whatever the containment is um, to make that product that fresh shipped um, to a home in a relative uh, reasonable time frame. So the grocery industry's got to got to got to win it fresh. Everyone can drop can put a couple uh, boxes of cereal or dry groceries or whatever it is in a box and ship it within a reasonable time frame and satisfaction would be there for the customer. But you got to be relevant. That's why personal shoppers in in this age of online shopping are so relevant to know their customers just like back in the 1800s to know what they like in their steaks, what they're like in their fresh produce. How do they like their bananas? Do they like it with brown spots on it? Do they like it bright yellow, you know, or they like it green? That knowledge base is so paramount um, to the future that Amazon can't get there because they don't they don't have enough footprint with a uh, Whole Foods in the marketplace to be fresh nationwide. They may have a solution they're working on. It may be uh, it may be around the corner we don't know about yet. But uh, right now, the grocery industry has a chance to own fresh online shopping because we are the last mile and close enough to the consumer um, to be the freshest quality and most customer satisfaction there is. Ron has got just vast experience. A lot of golden nuggets were shared here today and look forward to getting Ron back with us soon. And Ron, thank you so much. Uh, and I also want to thank the marketing team that puts, to, puts this together, Stephanie Doherty and Aswini on our side who put this entire show together. And we'll talk to you again next Monday. Uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, over and out. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com. Until next time, this is Shaker. And this is Gary, signing off.